So today is part two of a new series called Blank Slate. And the idea is this, like what if you knew nothing about faith? What if you'd never been to Sunday school or your grandmother had never told you about Christianity or you'd never been to synagogue or whatever your faith tradition and background is? Like what if you knew nothing and you were starting with a blank slate? You were starting from the ground floor. And so in, in what we're doing is we're trying to look at the Christian faith, the Jesus, the Jesus tradition, the Jesus movement, as if we'd never heard about it before. Um, and these series or these weeks are going to build on each other. Some will be standalone, but you, it's helpful just to, to keep up. And I know you travel a lot um, and have a lot of different things going on. Um, and so if you miss a sermon, I'd really encourage you to, you can um, catch up on iTunes um, or on Google Play or as I like to... Tell everyone now on Alexa. That's like the, I, I don't know why I think that's cool. Um, anyway, I sometimes just say, hey, Alexa, play the table church so I can hear my voice. Um, I don't know, it's weird. Uh, yeah, so here's where we were last week, though. So yeah, stay, uh, try to keep up best you can. It's also on the website. Um, but where we, what we talked about last week is that everything in life has a beginning. Everything has a beginning, including faith. And for most of us, we begin to formulate a faith framework somewhere in childhood or early teenage years. And our faith framework looks something like this, that God is good. But then you got older and you begin to, to, to come to terms with all the pain and the suffering and the chaos in our world. And you begin to ask questions like, if God is good, then why are so many people dying of preventable causes in our world? You were taught that God answers prayer, but you prayed with everything in you. you. You believed, you had faith, you did everything right, and your prayer wasn't answered. You were taught that God heals people. And so you believed that your friend or your parent or a family member or grandma or grandpa would heal something, heal an illness, a relationship, and you prayed with everything in you, and then it didn't get healed. And as time went on, for many of us, it wasn't even conscious, but as time went on, there began to be an increasing separation from the faith that we were handed as a child and where we were today. And the problem is, for many of us, is it's more insidious, actually, than, than, than non-belief, right? Because if you've, made, if you've chosen to opt out of the faith, like, that is a conscious decision you have made. But for many of us, it is an unconscious decision, but we woke up one day and we realized that faith was completely irrelevant to how we live our lives. So we're, in this series, we're asking the question, what it, would it look like for us as adults to hit the restart button, to wipe the slate clean, and to approach the faith as if we'd never heard it before? And what we said last week is that many of us were told that the starting point of our faith is the Bible. We were told that the starting point of our faith was basically this idea that the Bible says, so whenever you had a question, the answer was always, well, the Bible says. The problem with you is that you're smart, and you're like, yeah, but you know what else the Bible says? And that never goes over well with the people telling you the Bible says. And so last week what we said is the starting point of our faith cannot be the Bible says. Instead, the starting point of our faith has to be this. It is a question. Who is 
Jesus. So that's where we left off last week. Um, but today, I actually, we're going to pick up that kind of question and looking at who is Jesus and looking at some bigger themes. Um, but this week, I want to take a detour and I want to look at a very heavy topic. And I want to look at the topic or the word, this heavy word, sin. Now, sin is this deeply theological word. It's not part of our everyday, like, no, like we, we don't use sin on a regular basis. So, for example, right, if, if you have messed up at work, you've, you, know, you screwed up the TPS reports or whatever the thing is that you do, like, your boss does not call you in and say, I need to have a conversation with you because you have sinned against the organization. Or, you know, you're speeding, the cop doesn't walk up to your window and say, you know what you did wrong back there? And you're like, going 25 and a, or going 50 and a 25? He doesn't, he doesn't say, nope, you sinned, right? That, like, we just don't, we don't talk that way. And if you do, you're weird. <laughs> the other problem with the word sin is that it's been used to heap condemnation on us at incredibly formative moments in our lives. Some of you were told that just because of who you are made you a sinner. I remember living in or being at youth camp as a kid, and um, there would be like a fiery preacher up front, and they would be spitting, and, and it seemed that everything in life was a sin and, and they were able to heap such condemnation on us. But to be fair, right, like I was 12 years old and I had hormones raging and I kept looking at the girl across the aisle, right? Like it's easy to make a 12-year-old boy feel like everything in his life is sinful. But all of us have, or many of us have had sin used as a club against us. And so as we get older, we begin to leave this word with so much baggage behind us. And what we've done is instead of talking about sin, we've substituted it for another word, which is mistake. Well, I didn't sin. I just made a mistake. Like if I was to walk in here today and, and say, how many of you have made a mistake at some point in your past? Every single person in this room would like raise your hands. Yes, clearly I've made a mistake. But if I came in here and asked, how many of you have sinned? just get awkward, right? Like, no one, like, you might raise your hand, but you do not want to be the first person to raise your hand, right? Is anyone else going to admit that they've sinned? But mistakes are a, are slip-ups, are, are something you do because you have insufficient knowledge. But some of you have made mistakes on purpose. Some of you have premeditated your mistakes, and some of you keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. Mistakes doesn't cut it. Something else is going on because when you make a mistake, what you do is you correct it. But the truth is, there, is, there are things in our life that we have a really hard time correcting. Whether it be pride or greed or a desire for power or selfishness or anger, there's this old um, theological term that used to be thrown around. They would talk about, it's your besetting sin. Right? There is like something that you struggle with on a consistent and reoccurring basis that is like just part of who you are. Now, the definition of sin is this. Someone or something that misses the mark. And we're going to actually talk about this more next week, but the mark, we believe, is 
is that we were created in the image of God. We were created to be image bearers. We were created to reflect the love of God, both back to God and to everyone we came into contact with. Right? We were created from love for love. But that image, we believe, has been distorted. We are missing the mark. We are not always people who loves the way that we should love and cares for other people the way we should love. But the other piece to sin is this, and this is key. The other piece to sin is that sin is relational. Sin is relational. And sin breaks relationship. Sin breaks relationship between between us and God. Sin destroys and disintegrates relationships between people. And I believe, and this is like another topic for another day, but I believe that sin destroys relationships between God and creation. Like I think sin is more than simply something personal. It is personal, but there are also deeper ways that we participate in sin. But we were made from relationship for relationship. But sin breaks that relationship. In chapter 3 of Genesis, we discover the story of Adam and Eve. And it can be essentially wrapped up that, that there was this incredible relationship between God and humanity. Right? God would walk in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. Right? There was this incredible intimacy. But then through sin, that intimacy is shattered. And instead of desiring relationship with God, instead of God being the ultimate thing, the thing that gives us purpose and meaning in life, we substituted money and power and recognition and fame and security and pleasure, and whatever the thing is that we chase after, whatever the thing is that we have given ultimate significance, ultimate importance to in life. And then this guy named Jesus shows up, and we can find his stories in the New Testament, in the Gospels. But Jesus shows up, and we think of Jesus as kind of like being like the cooler, like the nicer God. Right? We think of like God the Father, to use like kind of traditional language. We think of God the Father as, as being the one that we talked about the, last week, the song, Oh, Be Careful, Little Hands, What You Do for the Father Up Above is like looking down. Um, we think of like God the Father as like kind of this mean ogre that maybe we read about in the, the, the Old Testament. And then we think about Jesus as kind of like this touchy-feely hippie dude who walked around in sandals and drove a Prius and just like said, can't we all just get along? But Jesus shows up on the scene and what he does is actually he does not lower the bar and say, can't we just all get along? You're okay and I'm okay. In fact, Jesus shows up and says, no, 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 you need to understand something. You're all sinners. No, all of you, even you in the back who's reading your Bible while I'm talking, we are all sinners. And the point that Jesus tries to get at over and over and over is that we can never be restored and we can never be redeemed until we're willing to look at ourselves in the mirror, until we're willing to acknowledge that we are not simply people who make mistakes, but that we are sinners. Think about this. Think about someone you're in relationship with. And when you do something wrong, when you wrong that person, when you wrong that person, if you go, sorry, hey, can we just like move on beyond what I did? Like, let's not acknowledge that I did it, but let's just, I'm sorry. Did, did I say I'm sorry? Okay, cool. Can we just move on? I don't want to talk about it anymore. And the person's like, no. 
Like, you need to acknowledge how deeply you hurt me, you idiot. Or something along those lines. But as long as you see yourself as just a person, like, oops, sorry, I shouldn't have done that. We good? As long as you won't acknowledge the depth of it, there's no ability for the relationship to be restored. The only way for a relationship to be restored is for the, the, per, the offender to acknowledge and own the offense. Now, I, I hurt you deeply. I was a complete and utter jerk. I was completely absorbed with my own self, my own needs, my own desires, and what I wanted in life, and I did not care about what you needed or what you wanted. And I own that, and I'm sorry. When there is that depth of that acknowledgement, then there can be restoration. And Jesus comes along and he said, God wants to be restored with us, but the only way that there can be restoration is for you first to admit your own brokenness. This is why when we, talk, when we approach the communion table every week, we always say the only thing that we ask, the only thing that we require is that you see yourself as a need of God's grace. Because if you think you have it all figured out and you are perfect, the gospel is meaningless. And Jesus doesn't ever dumb down sin. In fact, he raises the bar. Look at Matthew 20. In Matthew 20, Jesus is, is talking with a group of religious leaders and Pharisees and like really good, like if they were Christians, if this was like today, they would be like the uber-Christians. And he's talking to all these people and he says that, look, unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And everyone's groaning, right? Because they were the, they were the goody two-shoes. They did everything right. And back, they had organized their entire life around 630-odd rules that they never broke. They were so perfect. And Jesus is like, look, unless you're better than these people who have like, dedicated their whole life to, to being good, you're not going to... You're missing the mark. But then Jesus says something really interesting. He then begins to crank up the volume even more. He said, you've heard it said long ago, or you've heard it said to those who live long ago, don't commit murder, and all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. And that, like, the goody two-shoe group over there is like, yep, yep, it's one of our 630 rules. And then Jesus says, but, but, but wait, I'm not done. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. And then you hear a groan, right? Like, that's not one of the 630 rules, Jesus. And then he's like, and you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, and then they really, like, you've got to be kidding me, Jesus. Right? That's also not one of the But I tell you that anyone who's looked at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. Just like, and then he says, look, my point is not to heap condemnation. That's not why I'm here. Jesus does not end with condemnation. And the problem is, the people that Jesus gets in the biggest fights with, the people that he ends up crossing, like, like, like getting the biggest arguments with, are the religious goody-two-shoes, the people who are keeping the 630 rules, the people he's actually just held up. He's like, if you're not better than these people, you're, you're in trouble. And part of the reason you're in trouble is because they're in trouble. Because the problem with the Pharisees is they thought they had it all figured out and that they had managed, they'd figured out how to manage sin. 
they had created a list of rules, 630 things, or whatever the number is, 600 odd things. As long as they followed those 600 and something things, they were okay, but they never had to deal with the deeper issues, the things that were driving them. It was all external, right? Which is why he looks at them and says, like, inside you are like rotting filth. There's this moment where Jesus is, is teaching. And they bring this woman to him who had been caught. Like she'd been caught in the act of adultery. And they bring her to him and, and they say, hey, Jesus, this woman deserves to be stoned. You know the law. You're, you're a rabbi. You know this. She deserves to be stoned. And then Jesus begins to turn the, turn the tide on them. And he's like, okay, you're, you know what, you're right. You, you, anyone here that has never sinned, why don't you throw the first stone? And Jesus, Jesus' point is, look, we are all broken. You need to embrace it, and then I want to offer you something new. But if you it, play this little game where you dance around in the middle, where you're like, I, I'm not like perfect, but I'm, I'm a pretty decent person. I'm definitely better than, and then you have your friend. We all have our friend that we are better than, right? Every time, like, yeah, every time I start feeling bad about myself, I think, well, I am not as bad as, and then you fill in your friend. You know you have that friend, right? And, and, and Jesus is dealing with two separate groups of people. On the one hand, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees who think they have it all figured out and they have figured out how to manage sin. And then on the other hand, he's like partying on the weekends with people that are really disturbing the Pharisees because there is another whole group of people who realize that, and these are the people that Jesus is partying with, they, they believe that we are so far gone, we are so outside the bounds of God's love, we are so far messed up that there is no hope, and so we should just eat, drink, and be merry, and just like make the best of it until we die. And so Jesus is trying to hold in tension these two separate pe groups of people that he's in relationship with. The one group think they have it all together, but he actually says, you're further gone than the people over here who are just wasting their life away because they think that there is no hope for them. And Jesus is like, neither of these things work. They both need restoration. And then in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells, starts off by telling the story of the, the 99, right? He's, or the, the lot, first he starts off talking about the lost coin, and then he talks about the, you know, there was 100 sheep, and, and, and one of the sheep is lost, and what does the shepherd do? Instead of like saying, well, still got 99, Jesus like goes out, or the shepherd goes out and tracks down and finds, and finds the one who is missing and says, look, I want, to be, I, I want you back. Luke 15 is just a beautiful chapter. If you've ever felt unworthy or you felt you've strayed too far, you should read this chapter. So Jesus is with the Pharisees and the, or with the tax collectors and the sinners, those who are seen outside God's law. And the Pharisees say, this man, he, he eats with sinners and he welcomes them. And Jesus is really agitated. And, and so he, he shares the story of the 99 and he shares the story of the lost coin. And then he shares one of the most iconic stories in all of Scripture. A story that we, I think, sometimes gloss over the deep power and the deep meaning of the story. He shares the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is a story that Jesus, who we believe is God, that Jesus creates 
to help us understand the character of God. Jesus creates a story, crafts a narrative, specifically to help us understand the character of God. The story of the prodigal son wants to help you understand the heart of God. And in this story, there is a son who is he's just, he's a punk. There's two sons. One is like the goody two-shoe, and he's the good kid, and he always does everything right. And then there's another son who is just a punk. And they both have an inheritance coming to them. And, and, and the punk is ready to, like, his father is, works out a little too much and is a little too healthy, and he will not freaking die. And until he dies, the son cannot have the inheritance. Like, that's the story, right? The dad will not die. All the smoothies and the avocado toast are keeping him alive. I heard someone the other day, this is a complete side note, but I was listening to something the other day that says, if you're alive in 2030, your chances of living to 120 years old like increase dramatically. I, yeah, that's a long, anyway, um, there's so many thoughts I have about this. Anyway, so this, the point is this father in the story, he's living a long time. And, um, and so the son goes to him and it's like, dad, drop dead. Like seriously, drop dead. I, I want you dead. I want my money. And, and, in, and in Jesus' culture, I mean, in our culture, I mean, we've been kind of desensitized by like the whole honey boo boo movement. But, but like prior to that, right, you, you didn't, I mean, like, there, like, you didn't talk to your elders that way. You don't go to your, I mean, we probably still wouldn't do that today, but like you don't, like they were, the, the audience was shocked. They gasped. No one talks this way to their father. And he goes and says, look, dad, drop dead. I want my money. And the, and the father says, okay, you can have your money. And the son goes off and he squanders the money and he completely ruins his life. He got what was coming to him. And then the, the narrative continues. And the son is like, I, I would be better off as one of my father's servants, as a hired hand, than I am in this house or in my current situation. So he gets up and he goes home. Like he's given up any hope that he will ever be a son that he'll ever be a daughter. There are some of you here who have given up the hope that you will ever be a son or daughter of God. You believe that you are too far gone and you are too far outside the love and the grace of God, outside the bounds. This, 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 this character in this story, the, this character that Jesus has created to show us the heart of God believes that he is too far gone. In fact, the, Jesus narrates the story to show us like he is a jerk. He is a bad person. And he goes back destitute and broken. And Luke 15, 21, we pick up the story. And he says, Father, I have sinned against you, or I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy. I'm no longer worthy. He's filled with so much shame. In Genesis, the thing that separates Adam and Eve from God is not the sin. It's the shame. It's the shame that caused them to go into hiding. He said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, like he doesn't even acknowledge it. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Treat him like the royal celebrity. For this son of mine, for this daughter of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. The moral of this story is that recognition of sin. He comes and he says, look, I have, Father, I have sinned. I, I, am, I am messed up. I am not worthy. Recognition of sin paves the way to restoration and redemption. And what God does is God doesn't like, you are right. Or what the Father in the story does is like, you are right. You suck. Instead, he says, welcome home. I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting at the end of this road every day, looking over the horizon or into the horizon, hoping I would see you come. I've been waiting for this day. Welcome home. And then they begin to celebrate. And Jesus puts these words in the son's mouth. We have to remember, like, Jesus is, narr- Jesus is creating everything. The words that are being spoken, Jesus is creating. And he's, Jesus puts these words in the son's mouth. He says, Father, I have sinned. I, 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 I don't deserve to be called your son. And the father doesn't even respond. He just says, quickly, put the best robe on him. My son is home. They begin to celebrate the restoration of a relationship that had been severed. And when you are considering Jesus and when you are considering restarting your faith and you are starting from ground zero and you're starting from scratch, when you think about hitting the restart button, when you hear Jesus talk about sin, you need to understand that Jesus talks about sin not as a way to heat condemnation, but as a way towards a path to restoration. Jesus Jesus' condemnation is reserved for those who think they have it all figured out, who think they are good enough. And Jesus says, you've got to embrace who you are. You have to look yourself squarely in the mirror and acknowledge the places where you do not reflect the love of God. You have to acknowledge the ways that you do not love others the way that you should, the ways that you serve your own self-interest, the way that you put yourself ahead of others, You have to acknowledge the way that your pride causes you to treat others in ways that are not kind and are not loving. You have to acknowledge the way that your ambition causes you to step on other people and has caused you to hurt people and to sever and break relationships. But once you have that acknowledgement and you are able to see yourself clearly for who you really are, you can begin a path to restoration. And it's way easier just to think of ourselves as someone who makes mistakes. But Jesus says, the acknowledgement of our sin is the first step towards restoration. Jesus says, we are sinners in need of forgiveness. But the truth of the matter is, at the end of the day, when you are honest with yourself and when it is just you alone with your thoughts, You don't need a preacher standing up here telling you that you have sinned. You know the ways that you have broken and severed relationships. 
You know the ways that you're besetting sin, that thing that is like part of you, that is like the thing that keeps tripping you up. And it's different for all of us. But you know the way that that thing continues to break and harm relationship. But, but you also have this sense inside of you that, that you were made for something more that the story that has been written so far is not the story that has to define you. Because with inside each of us is, this, is the image of God, this image that has been, that has been, that has been distorted, that, has been, that, that is not fully realized, but inside of us we realize that there is something more and we can be something more than who we are now. Paul talks about the restoration of all things of all things. But we cannot begin the path towards restoration until we acknowledge the way that we contribute to brokenness. And Jesus always sees that acknowledgement as the beginning of our path to restoration. Now we're going to leave that here um, and we'll pick up next week. But here's the question I want you to just wrestle with this week. And I know we're not in dinner parties yet, but find a friend, take him to coffee, journal. Do you, but here's the question. Do you res, resist the idea that you're a sinner? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Like, do, how does that sit with you? Because my guess is you've not, like, it's not a category, unless you like, go to a lot of hellfire and brimstone churches, it's not a category that you've considered on a regular basis. But do you consider, or do you resist the idea that you're a sinner? Let's pray. God, I thank, you for, I thank you for the words that are recorded in the Gospels, the words of Jesus, these words that, that reveal your heart for us. When I stop and consider just the overwhelming idea that the story it was designed and told to tell me a bit more about your character. I honestly have a hard time believing it. God, we all admit and acknowledge the places that we are failed, we have failed, and that we are broken, and that we have sinned. And God, I pray that you would you would help us to see the brokenness in our lives but then you would lead us on a path towards restoration so that we can become more fully who you have created us to be and we can live more fully into the purposes that you have created for us. In Jesus' name.